0: Welcome to Design Talk Podcast. I'm Foss and I'll be your podcast coordinator. We got Eva, Viet, Ivan, and Morris on the team for today's session. Our theme today is sourcing models and decision making. We're tackling the big question that is surely on everyone's mind. Making Up Your Mind, How Vendors Make Decisions to Help Clients to Outsource. We have a special guest speaker with us today, a professional with over 15 (laughs) years of experience in operations management and a distinguished work experience in high-profile organizations. Henrik Malk, thank you for joining us today. Hi, guys. We're very delighted to have you with us today. Um, Maybe to kick off the interview, you can tell us more um, about yourself, maybe your background uh, within the outsourcing context?
1: Sure. Um, So, as Faw said, I have... 15 plus years in operations and mostly in in vendor management. So, I worked both as a vendor management, i.e., on the client side where you manage vendors. I worked as a vendor, uh, managing clients and trying to incorporate their thoughts and wishes. And I worked as a consultant, supplying both with ideas of how to improve the vendor operations. So, I've seen it from three different angles. And recently, in these areas, I worked for Accenture and outsourcing large operations. I worked for Google running operations across Europe, Asia, EY as a consultant.
0: That's quite impressive. I'm sure you have a lot of uh, insights to share with us. Um, so I'll pass it to Eva, who will be our interviewer for today. Eva, would you like to take the floor? Hi, Henry. Lovely to Hi. meet you. Um,
2: Foos has uh, sung your praises all week. <laughs> and to be honest, like a lot of this sourcing and, and offshoring is actually quite new to me. I'm two weeks in. And uh, Fooz has been very helpful in uh, helping me understand the landscape uh, a lot more. And I'm hoping you can help with that. So first of all, uh, you have many years working in this industry. What has captivated your interest for so long?
1: I think the first thing that, that it is, it's a very di- diverse environment. So you have a broad spectrum of outsourcing. So when people talk about outsourcing or BPO, it is a very, very broad Broad spectrum, so you have everything from very simple outsourcing to, as, you know, cleaning services in a hotel, all the way up to full-on customer for a large multinational across multiple regions and so on. You have data versus customer care, so it's a huge amount of differentials. So that makes it varied. You also have a lot of clients who are on a journey as part of this. Um, they start thinking about it and then it evolves like some of the projects i've been involved it started off with a concept of should we should we not do it and within six months you had 120 people working on it Uh, so it can be very rapid it can go up and down so it's that's one of the things i really enjoy it
2: so it's a fast-paced environment basically and different every day
1: yes it's incredibly different and you know you work with people uh you work with clients so you have to stretch your Interpersonal skills, because you have to build a relationship with your ven- with your clients or your vendor partner, depending on which side you are on. You also have to work with your staff, uh, look after them, ensuring that they are productive, um, and also have to be very technical. I love the operational side of it because you have to think about how process this. How do you do? Um, how do you solve a problem that the client is presenting to you? You know, they have an idea of what they want to do. It may not always be fully possible to do it. You have to figure out ways around that.
2: You mentioned the, the client-vendor relationship. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? How has it differed? You've worked a lot amongst many employers. Have yeah. it differed amongst them? Um, yeah. What worked? What
1: didn't work? I can say this. this in broad terms I think there's three types of vendor relationship. There's the sort of hands-off vendor relationship, which historically probably been the most common one, where you hire a vendor. And then you give them an instructions and then you leave them to it. Yeah. And if you're, in some cases, you don't come back until like six months or maybe even a year after. And we're like, yep, that seems fine. Thank you very much. You may get an email every now and then saying that they did a good job. These work really well when you have very standardized products. So if you want to do, again, we, we mentioned the cleaning product. So a cleaning service or something like that. Or product development. So it's very st- transactional very simple to outsource this is the one that most people think of when they think about outsourcing particularly outsourcing as in far away so if you use india uh, or something like that for uh, product development product development but you know controls um quality assurance transactional you're, you're processing invoices and stuff like that then you can move up to the, to the other extremes where you have very very hands-on this will be the more near shore or onshore but a client is heavily involved in what's going on because you're outsourcing something that's incredibly sensitive like customer engagement um, revenue streams product development uh, where you actually are um, dealing with it so this would be like we worked in Google we would have onshore or near shore operations hubs why? because we needed to go there we had people embedded in the operation so in an operation of about 50-60 people we would have a Googler on site. You can imagine what that does for the relationship from both from a partner perspective and from the client perspective. In the first place, the client does very, very, little, very hands-off and, and very little overhead. In the latter one, huge overheads considering it's an outsourcing operation, but you also have a massive amount of control and that's something you want. It's the balancing that risk versus control.
2: Very interesting. You're already adding quite a lot of color to the models that we've been looking at all week. Um, It's different when you're looking at a model and you can actually add context to it now. (laughs) You've mentioned um, risk and trust there. Um, And trust and risk are clearly major issues for a client. Uh, What is your strategy for winning their trust and easing their anxieties?
1: I think the number one is transparency and being honest. There will always be problems. Um, That's one of the things that that always happens. Things don't always go as you foresee them. One of the things I tend to do when I start a new engagement, it doesn't matter which side you're on, you start discussing how will you handle change and how will you handle issues? So you have a clear issue management procedure and a change management because those two things you can almost be guaranteed will always come up. Unless you've been doing this outsourcing for 40 years and you know exactly how it's going to be doing, and this tends to be more in, in production facilities, you tend to see this. You can specify to very, very high level how... The widgets that come out in the other end is going to look, yeah, I haven't been that much involved in that. I'm more on the service side. And in service side, you can almost guarantee things will change Mm -hmm. because things will evolve as you learn. So how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with upcoming issues? And this could be anything from financial to quality to staffing issues to you name it, they can come up. But how do you manage that? How do you communicate that? And being transparent with the client, you know, sometimes you have to hold up your hands and saying, sorry, this did not work out as we expected, but here's what we're doing to fix it. Uh, at the same time, you have sometimes have to go back to the client and say, you know what, what you asked us to do is not realistic under the current circumstances. So the parameters you have given us does not make it impossible for us to achieve this. Can we loosen some of the parameters? And then you have an honest discussion. Can I ask, Henrik, um,
3: uh, about a very, at the very early stage of mm. an engagement, How do you get the foot in the door? How do you open the door? Um, Mm. And how do you get to having a contract? Uh, So from a vendor's perspective, how do you develop a client, a potential client?
1: So there's two things that tends to happen. One is that there's an RFI or an RFP. Uh, And part of that is, you know, most clients would then select a number of it. And part of when I worked for EY, that was what we helped a lot of clients to do, selecting the vendors. And what you look for in the early stages is vendor partners who can, meet your specifications. So if you're looking for an outsourcing in customer care, for instance, do they have any experience in customer care? Is this customer care or is this sales? That tends to be a, a blurred area sometimes. Uh, but you want to look for a partner and who has it. Do they have scalability? Are they financially stable? So you have all of those parameters. So those tends to be on the client side they tend to look for. On the vendor side, you want to want to make sure is you are always present at the right time. So you are you have your name out there, you build a network. So some of the more senior staff members uh, tend to be very good networks in the community and they know other people in the community. So when an RFP comes out, they tend to hear about it. So it's not always that easy, but you know, I've been on the client side where we literally have phoned up clients and saying, hey, we've seen your website and it looks very interesting. You seem to match up. We're doing an RFP. Would you be interested in And rarely do they say no. Uh, but that has sometimes happened. On the other hand, I've been on the other side receiving the phone calls and done the phone calls saying, hey, are you planning to do an RFP in the near future in these areas? That's a part of the vendor house that is constantly looking for new business. So it's the business development side. They they know who the clients are and they know what their strengths and weaknesses are and know their competitors. So they tend to leverage that.
3: As a vendor, do you find that mm-hmm. maybe per- perhaps uh, clients who are not as sophisticated, looking to vendors to educate themselves before they make that decision. And in a sense, you the vendor uh, can spend a lot of time doing that education and missing out on
1: the deal, ultimately. I would say yes and no. People who don't know they're, edu- they're not educated tend not to know they're educated, not educated. So so it tends to be like a catch-22. What has happened in some cases uh, is that as a vendor, you have to go back and sort of ask for clarifications. So you try to do it in a very nice and, and gentle way of saying, do you want us to do this and this, or or this? And as you start asking probing questions, sometimes a light bulb goes off. And client goes, "Oh, we never thought of that." That helps then in you preparing your bid. During that, you tend to come across as a very, very smart and very competent service provider. So that actually helps you in your bid. But yeah, I've seen some RFPs where client has been very much. Uh, Unknown. A good example is around data. I had a client that I consulted who was about to change a vendor from one. We're going out for an RFP. And we asked them who owns the data. And they said, we do. And then we said, are you sure on that? And they're like, of course we are. We're the client. And they're like, well, you've been having the same vendor for three years. But you never asked them to provide you any data. And once we start poking a little bit, it turns out that the vendor actually owned the data. So the vendor was sitting on all of their customer interactions for the last three years and owned that. They didn't. So they were about to change vendor who's going to have to start off from scratch on the 31st or 1st of January that year, which was a very daunting task for any new vendor come in so ultimately they decide to pick the same vendors they had for the last three years for another three years because they just couldn't trans- but what they did do is change the contracts so the data was then owned and was consistently transferred over to themselves so they would be in a position another three years later to do that but that cost them a fair bit because that vendor was not the cheapest weren't providing the best service but they had a certainly competitive advantage.
2: I kind of imagined the educational process is sort of a laborious task. It's very much coming across as kind of part of the pitch. So what, would, what differs you from your competitors? What do you usually draw upon to differentiate yourself? We
1: wouldn't do a lot of it. We are in the process of starting it. So we're still... A, and I think this highlights one of the main challenges. A lot of people think outsourcing is a co- pure cost-cutting operation. And what you sometimes find is senior managers, uh, particularly on the finance side, say, oh, this is great. We can outsource 200 people. Imagine the cost savings we will do. We will shift the cost from staffing costs to OPEX, which we don't have all of those challenges if we need to re- make, uh, make cuts. What you forget a lot of times is you do need to do investment in your internally to have an organization you can handle outsourcing. Now, again, if it's an incredibly transactional basic, you can specify it down to the T on a flowchart then you'd probably don't. But in most complicated outsourcing, you know, like customer care, sales, any form of that kind of service arrangement, you need to have a vendor operation internally who can manage the vendors, provide insights, do quarterly business reviews, monthly business go on site, figure out when things don't work, look for new vendors if needed. That is staffing cost. That is skills that you need to develop. When you go out and do it first time, that team will be highly, will educate themselves from that and learn. But as they do it again and again, they'll become better and better. And you'll build up institutional knowledge. That tacit knowledge will be sitting within the organization that, but you have to have that not having it. It's almost a recipe for disaster because you end up like the client I just described, not knowing what's going on. And if you're trying to make any changes, you may have some serious deficiencies in your contracts or, in the way you do your operations.
2: So there's quite more, a lot more to this outsourcing and offshoring than just outsourcing or offshoring for the cheapest option. Yeah. There's there's hidden uh, there's relationships that you have to manage. There's oh, hidden yeah. costs. There's tacit yeah. and implicit knowledge that is lost.
1: Yes. I mean, part of transferring something, and then you look at companies like Google, LinkedIn, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, all of these large tech companies, they have huge internal vendor operations management. A good example most recently is I have colleagues or former colleagues who now works for TikTok, and they're setting up the European operation. They're having a team of plus 10, 15 people. So you think of they outsource maybe five, 600 people, and you have 10 people internally looking after that. The ratio there is quite high. Why? They need that control. They want to have that. They want to develop that relationship so they can improve their operation, consistently make process improvement, and streamline. So it, is, it takes a lot of training and, and skills on internally to be committed to it. It is not as simple as saying, look, we need to hire the cheapest person who can do this. Even if you just hire 10 developers in India, someone needs to manage them you know, and look after make sure to do the right things and look after it, particularly if you are a customer facing, behave in the way that they represent your brand. Ultimately.
3: Hen- Henrik, a question there. You've referred to this retained capability. We call it the retained capability of the client organization. Um, and yeah. that tends not to be uh, focused on an organizational unit oftentimes, no. um, and it's, it's, but, but it's crucial, I ex- expect, for a, a vendor to, to mm-hmm. link into them because you're both, in a sense, working with them and also mm-hmm. working with the people. With the,
0: yeah.
1: How do you find out who those people are? Hopefully, you have a partner on the other side that you can ask. In many cases, in the early days of an large-scale operations, you would actually have Duplicity, So you would have the vendors doing exactly the same job as some internal employees. And you would benchmark against this. So that will form your almost like an A and B test. You you can compare and contrast and you can transfer knowledge between these as you're ramping up the skills among the vendors. There'll come a point when the vendors take over more and more and ultimately full on. And you can redeploy your internal staff to other tasks that are more high value. So that's the the journey then you go through. So, So that's it. If you're then making a shift in that, one of the things you're trying to do, you're trying to make, for instance, like a 2 piece So 2 piece is basically where you transfer the employees from one operation to another. So the operation continues more or less smooth, but another company takes over. So imagine you're making burgers and all of a sudden your logo changes from Burger King to McDonald's. The burgers, you know, the meat is the meat, it's meat and the burger is a burger. You may do some tweaks around it and the colors may change, but the staff can be relatively quickly re-skilled for that. Uh, and that would be a 2P example. So that's what you're looking to do in a lot of these cases when you're making big shifts. If not, you tend to go back to the same principle. You hire another vendor, you run them parallel to ensure that. So it's a smooth transition. But it, 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 tacit knowledge and, and capabilities internally is a huge part of the package and that inertia that you, you try to make sure you build up.
3: I expect the uh, team that has the retained capability in the client organization is a crucial team to get on side because they'd be working against you if they weren't with you. Yep. So, they're, so they're part, part of, of that
1: is, yeah, it is that relationship building is, is, is crucial, right? So so part of the role as a vendor in the vendor side is relationship management. You have to understand who the stakeholders in the, And one of the things you have to understand is your partner has managers above him or her. So you need to understand what are their drivers? How do you provide your partner with the right information, the right insight so they can manage their stakeholders? So it becomes a, ultimately it should be a work together to solve the problem. That's what you're looking to do. Now, there are cases where the vendor and and, and the client don't talk and, and they're like, there are conflicts and those tend to be very hard challenges to overcome. Ultimately, you want to be on the same page because you are working to ultimately solve the to solve the same problem. And if as a vendor you do a good job, you'd be well rewarded for it.
2: We actually have a question from the audience. How will COVID and the migration to remote working impact nearshoring, offshoring businesses going forward, do you think, if at
1: all? I think it does a little bit. I think the way it probably will have an impact is that there was always this debate a few years ago, can people work from home? Will they be productive? You know, oh, if we let our staff work from home, all they're gonna be doing is sitting in the pajamas. And drinking coffee don't work. I think we have, without a shadow of a doubt, proven that people are actually quite productive working from home. I think the new normal that we're going to come out of this is that people are probably not going to be in the office five days a week. I know I just had it with my CEO. Uh, We're having discussions right now. Do we need to have everyone in the office five days a week? Probably not. So what does that mean? Well, that means I probably can spend two days at home doing VCs the entire day. And then I go into the office for three days doing conference meetings and brainstorming where you really want to have that face-to-face. And you look at the vendor outsourcing, you can probably translate that into it. So you can probably be a little bit more di- disperse, which probably allows you from scalability, hiring. One of the major challenges in outsourcing is hiring. Trying to big build, particularly in Europe where we have multilingual challenges. So you're trying to bring staff from all over Europe to a centralized point, wherever that may be. That may not happen. Maybe what you do is have smaller regional hubs or even people working from home Complete. So then if you want to hire Germans, which tends to be one of the languages most hardest to hire, well, why try to hire five Germans to fly them to Dublin and upskill them in Dublin when you can do have them working from Germany?
2: Yeah, it's kind of got me thinking, like, does distance matter anymore? And I, I wouldn't have thought... Like I would have thought, yes, it does matter. But when you put it in the context of this year or the last 12 months, it's starting to feel like maybe no.
1: I think it does still because ultimately, and this comes back to the control part. If you're a client who don't really care about the control, no, it doesn't. If you are a very much a hands-off operation, so say you're doing, you know, invoicing processing, you don't need that. But if you want to have control and you want to be able to see and scale up and particularly if you work a fast moving organization, you want to be able to, to be able to fly and have staff there. There's nothing beats looking people in the eyes when you're telling them about a new product launch or you're talking to them, which are sharing knowledge, nothing beats that, you know, VCs are great, but if you have 200 people, it's very hard to get 200 people on a VC. and The picture you're going to see of their faces is incredibly small. But if you're in a room with 200 people, you can talk, you can walk around, you can have chats afterwards, you can have breakout sessions. So I still think that, again, this is why nearshore and onsites are very popular for these kind of very complicated outsourcing where you want high level of control. Price is not so important.
2: Do your solutions always go as planned?
1: No, never. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been in a program uh, where where you set out to do and if you look back on it six to nine months later, and someone and you say like, "Did I do that?" The question is, how close did you get? <laughs> um, sometimes you're not even on the same playing field. I mean, you're you're you literally you've gone off the pitch and you're playing football on the other side of the town. In other areas, you you sort of hit the ball towards a general area. Yeah. So it's uh, quite dynamic,
2: but, I guess you could say.
1: It is because you don't know what's going to happen. And as you start, it's a bit like like the Russian dolls. Every time you open one, there's another one underneath. And as you start doing this, you start finding new. New things, And what happens is you tend to look at it from a very high level when you're outsourcing. Oh, we want to outsource our churn management. Okay, that sounds super simple. Call up customers who are potentially churning or not churning or, or have churned people who have left or about to leave your organization. So you want to stop them doing that. That seems on paper super simple. But once you start getting into it, what are you telling them? What's the best pitch? What's the objections on this? And I start building those examples. You feed that information back. And you're like, well, actually, what if we do something six months before this, to stop 80% of those questions. Wow. Now you have to do a process improvement through what you've just learned, that knowledge. And that will then have knock-on consequences of what these staff are doing.
2: I'm sensing there's a lot of uh, like, imp- uh, tacit skill that goes on.
1: Enormous amount of it. And part of the role is to transfer that back to the client. In many cases, if you think of it, if you have an operation of 100 people and they do 10 phone calls a day, that's 1,000 phone calls every day you do that times 20 days that's 20,000 interactions in a month that's a statistically scientific model you can build on that now you can start doing conclusions on that saying how many calls we do how many touch this topic versus that topic what is the f- top 3 questions or feedback we get from client Within a month, you have that.
2: So I feel like you're pitching me. I'm so yes, the, I should be. Yeah, <laughs> on the outsourcing offering model. We said we'd only keep you for half an hour today. If anyone has any um, other questions, please pop them in the chat. Uh, we have one question from the audience. Uh, thanks, Shane, for this. Um, have you noticed any recent outsourcing trends, certain business operations or nations becoming popular to outsource to?
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's two main things. One is the lessons has probably been learned that control is more important than cost, in, in particularly from the tech companies. So these are your FinTechs, your InsureTechs, your your classic Googles and, and those, anyone working in that space. They have learned that lesson and they looked at that. They do a lot of outsourcing, but what they also learn is control is hugely important from a branding perspective, from uh, you know scalability perspective. What we're seeing is that they're moving the nearshore slightly differently. It used to be very much based in Dublin, uh um, a huge amount of outsourcing in Dublin for many years. That has now been shifting to other org- regions. Portugal now is becoming very, very popular. Poland has been very popular. Eastern Europe, uh, like uh, Hungary, has been also very popular for many years. What they're, what they're doing is they're setting up regional offices there. And again, they're trying to, to, to spread the risk. So if you think of it, if you have an operations in Dublin, you have one in Poland and one in Lisbon or um, Portugal. So say you have a snowstorm in Dublin. That whole office goes down for two days. Well, you have two others who can step in. Uh, another thing a lot of them are looking for is follow the sun model. That's another one that's becoming very popular, particularly for back-end support, data recovery, and these kind of things. And that model basically means that you have a center open at any given time, 24 hours a day. So you tend to have one in Europe to cover Europe and Middle East. Then you have one sort of India, Asia, that time zone that will cover most of Asia. Then you have one mostly on the West Coast or around Phoenix tends to be very popular in North America. So to cover then North American as they go on. And these t- sometimes they overlap by time zones. So you, can, you don't have to have staff working 24 hour shifts. So they only have to work maybe eight to 10 hour shifts. So they overlap. That way you can, regardless where your customers are, because sometimes you have very global customers and or if there's a problem, you always have staff available to kick in if something happens. So again, it depends on what you're looking to outsource. Customer care tend not to be the follow the sun model because you tend to be regionally based and you want to be regional based.
2: So it's not necessarily just about picking India or China like it's again drawing out what's important to the yeah, the it, client themselves like it
1: comes down to what you have and I mean India is incredibly popular on the development side so you look in Hyderabad and those areas you have a lot of outsourcing a lot of big tech companies are there and you have a lot of development companies there so you get almost a cluster effect of highly skilled people uh, who can then move in and help you out
3: really uh, just like to say I've really enjoyed the uh... Uh, the descriptions you've given us and the, the, the language you're using is is exactly the kind of language we'll need when we're involved in outsourcing both at a client and at the vendor level and it's been a fantastic introduction
2: Thank you